I mentioned on the first night that um, you know someone had been sending me these articles that someone had been writing that constantly said uh, the apostolic movement is is going to restore kingdom culture. But I never could find in the articles anything that said what kingdom culture was. And it sounded like they, they thought that this was something we didn't have and something that wasn't being preached by anybody yet much. I, I mean, I don't know really what they meant. It's just that the person sending this stuff to me had read all my books, had in fact had read them two and three times and, and agreed and, and loved them and believed. But I pointed out, you're missing something that what we've been teaching about relationships, about sonship, about holy communion, about the oneness of the body of Christ is the kingdom culture that the apostolic movement will restore. We've been teaching heart relationships, love one another deeply from the heart. Every one of us have within us the spirit of sonship, walk with fathers, know how to love and serve and honor fathers, and so on. The whole idea of a local church being a people of one heart, one mind, and um, this is the culture of the kingdom. There is nothing more central to all of Christianity than love one another. But this is whilst it's the biggest thing under our noses in the Bible, as far as instruction to Christians. Now, obviously, the biggest thing in the Bible is Jesus. From beginning to end, he is everywhere. And the whole purpose of revelation and of salvation history is to bring multitudes to Christ, the only Savior we have and will ever have. And so, you know, you come face to face with Jesus every day. But Jesus isn't interested just in us being, uh, you know, born again, our sins forgiven, and that's it. This is the beginning of something because he wants to position us, like ultimately, ultimately it says that one day we will see him and we'll be able to see him because we will discover that we have been made to be like him. And so the life that you have been called to, you might mean you often heard it's all about becoming Christ-like, becoming a disciple of Jesus, following Jesus, you know. And, and the biblical thing is if you are a, fo- a follower of Jesus, it means you are seeking to imitate Jesus. And he gave us one new command that is repeated in numerous ways. And he gives us the measure of it, how to measure it. As I have loved you, so you also must love one another. But what surprises me is that so many of us preach and preach and preach all manner of things from the Bible and don't put much emphasis on that particular thing. Now, if you're a local pastor, you tend to occasionally because you're concerned to try and wrap up problems in the church. But it's hardly ever been applied to the relationships of pastors across a city. And yet for me, 
the first place that that command of Jesus should be applied is to the heart relationships of the people who claim to be called to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And moreover, my conviction is that anybody who is genuinely an apostle, this will be their main message or one of their two or three main messages and it will be never left alone because you cannot seriously claim to be about the business of doing with the church or bringing the church into what Jesus wants with it unless this has a place front and centre in your operational platform of ministry. In other words, what you're concerned about for the saints everywhere. Do they love one another? Do they love one another deeply from the heart? as the scripture says. Do they love one another or honour one another more than themselves, as the scripture says? Do they really know what it means to forgive one another and to accept one another? Have they had, have they had cleaned out of their hearts the jealousies and the petty things, the rivalries, the, the ambitions, the desire to get ahead but they don't care if somebody else gets ahead? The offence taking is a common enough one. The, the, fear, the feeling of being slighted because you were overlooked for a job you might have wanted and someone else got it. Or someone else was honoured for, you know, a word they shared. This is a wonderful prophecy, says the pastor, but your word managed to get forgotten. You know, these, these things are actually cleaned out. Strangely, astoundingly, when you get a good dose of the spirit of understanding. It's a miracle. And for me, to have apostles and prophets, well, to have people claim to be apostles and prophets, but they have no clue about these heart dynamics. You know, it's not an emphasis for them at all. No, build better, build brighter, build bigger, raise more money, have more missions, you know. Like, it's a whole lot of emphasis on the doing, but no real heart understanding of the importance if you're going to build an apostolic people of knitting their hearts together. Keeping them on the same program because you've got an exciting vision, exciting program, you know, missions, this, that, the other. But we had all of that. Back in the 90s, like our church had all of that. We had a church growing. We had a whole new modern building. We had, uh, you, know, you know, abundant expressions of worship. It was great, actually. Wonderful worship, banners being waved. Occasionally, people would fall off their chairs drunk, but certainly people got healed every Sunday, healings and miracles. Occasionally, people glued to the floor. You know, waves of the Spirit would come, baptisms, and, you know, we had missions. The offerings were good. People used to come in, you know, from out west, visit the church. Oh, such a wonderful church. But it didn't satisfy us. It, it had to be that we'd received grace. And we had received grace. Uh, along the way, you know, grace had been given. We, we didn't always understand what we had. These, these anointings were shifted. Anointings were being piled up. It takes time to understand it all. But certainly by... 
the early 90s, the mid-90s, the desire of our heart, I know it was David's desire, David, Tony, I, Michael, we used to talk. How, you know, all this is happening. We've got a lot of good things, good people. There was deliverance. But how do you create oneness? You know, these, these people cooperated with each other. We had lots of good prayer meetings, but we still felt that there's something missing, you know, this what you might call intimacy or community. These were words we were using. It had to be the Holy Spirit causing us to be not satisfied. And then, and then he put us through division. You, you talk about enemies rise up within and, and accusations that were false and patently false. One of the accusations against me was that I was taking money out of the church and using it to fund my travel around the world. Look, I, I never even knew what money went in, what money went out. I never saw it, never touched it. I, I led the team, you know, I set the priorities. I declared where we were going, what we'd achieve. I, I never signed a single check. Never counted money in, never signed money out. The only exception I made to that was when we built that building and the first time a check had to be written for like $100,000, I thought, no, give me that thing. Let me write that. I want to have the pleasure of writing a big check, you know, for building that building. Outside of that, you know, no, there are other people that handled all that. It was all in the records. They're just foolish accusations. And, uh, but anyway, Satan cooked them up, managed to get people to, you know, so... So the Lord threw into the mixture all this division, but all the while promising unity, and all the while we're praying for it, all the while we're looking for it. And we got through that period and the church became peaceful again. And The Lord had cleansed the house somehow of something, testing times. And it was all to bring us to a point where the Holy Spirit would move upon us in fresh ways and teach us things we needed to learn. Because the ultimate goal was to find apostolic graces in a measure that went beyond what we already had. And in finding them, we found it really did change the heart and cause us to see each other differently, walk with each other differently. And so, um, you know, these apostolic anointings had their outworking. And it was during that same period that is starting in about 1995 or 1996, up until that point from 1989 through to about 95, 96, I had been mainly concentrating on the question of what is an apostle? You know, what's an apostle like? What do they do? What's their character like? Uh, what authority does an apostle have and not have? And, and I, whatever I learned, whatever I received from the Lord, you know, about the nature of an apostle, I hear the Lord say things like the, the hallmark of an apostle is gentleness, and I then searched it out through the scripture, learned a lot of things and taught them around the world. But there came a day in 1995 when all of a sudden I felt as if the ground had shifted under my feet. Like, like all it was really was a realization, oh, this is different than what I thought. And what I suddenly realized was that God wasn't just about what seemed to be the wonderful and astounding business of restoring apostles, but something much, much more incredible. He was actually 
about the business of transforming the whole church in the whole world and that he wanted to make the whole body of Christ across all nations an apostolic people, that all of God's people were meant to be apostolic in nature. But this raised a question. It wasn't hard to to think about what's the nature of an apostle and go to the Bible and search and see what the Lord was showing you and realize it was under your nose all the while and you could learn wonderful things and teach them. It seemed easy to understand that. But on, on this question, you know, what does it mean for the church to be an apostolic people? I was blank. I did not have immediate answers. I, I, uh, I understood the question, if you like, but didn't have an answer. And I started praying about it and searching the scripture. I could find nothing in the Bible. This is a funny thing. Search the whole New Testament. I couldn't find anywhere where it told you straight out what it meant to be an apostolic people because you're thinking like, if we're meant to become something different to what we are, what have we been? What's wrong with us if we're meant to change? What have we been missing? Because that's the implication, isn't it? If you're meant to become something, well, what were we? And so I kept seeking the Lord and asking this primary question, what does it mean to be an apostolic people? And months went past and praying and praying. Uh, My son David came in one day and just as I was starting to get some inklings, he was too. And, you know, he was contributing to the thought process. We discussed it. In the end, the Lord started to say things. And it wasn't until I'd written down all these things. I didn't think it was the answer to the question. I wrote them all down. I thought it was just extra information. But one day I realized that that is the answer to the question. And what I learned, because what I'd written down, and it's in at least two of my books, what I'd written down was uh, things like, because I'd asked the Lord the question. He just told me one thing at a time. What does it mean to be an apostolic people? And the first thing I heard was submission. Uh, what does that mean? You know, but when you find out what it means in the biblical set, it's wonderful. Wonderful thing. It's a heart attitude. It's a, it's a state of grace. It's your attitude to one another. It's your attitude to your leaders. It's the right attitude. It's the attitude children should have to their parents. Children should have to school teachers. We, we all should have authority. Husbands and wives have to each other you know, the particular roles, attitudes we should have to spiritual leaders. The right heart attitude is called submission in, in the scriptures. I heard other things, teachableness, humility, honor, you know, accountability, openness, transparency, uh, loving one another, uh, laying down your lives for one another. What I came to learn through all this process was that what it means to be an apostolic people in nature can only be defined ultimately in terms of our relationship with other people around us. How we we walk with one another, how we serve one another, how we love each other, what is our heart attitude to our leaders 
if you don't define the apostolic or what it means to be an apostolic people in terms of relationships, you have not defined it at all. Whereas in the past, people, as soon as you heard the word apostolic, you thought, oh, miracles, signs and wonders, planting churches, you know, raising the dead. These are externals. And it doesn't take much thought to realize anybody can plant a church and frequently do. In fact, the fellow that went down to a city in Samaria and preached and brought the whole city to Christ and baptized them was not an apostle. Philip the Evangelist. And it's been that way ever since. Little old ladies start churches. And when you think more about it, there's no particular thing that you can do, whether prophesy or heal the sick or raise the dead or take authority over demons and and see them scatter. None of these things actually require an apostle. And any believer rightly positioned can do the mighty works of Jesus. But that does not define what it means to be apostolic as a people. So this this is fundamental, and I have emphasized it all over the world. I go back to it again and again because people lose track. What it means to be apostolic cannot be defined by what you do by outward ministry actions, not by gifts. It can't be defined by giftedness. It can't be even defined, you know, by the work you do in the church. It has to be defined whether you're truly apostolic or not in terms of what is in the heart with respect to your spiritual maturity and your values. It's the values of the heart. It's the spirit in which you walk and live, the grace in which you walk. It has to be defined in terms of your relationship with God and your relationship with people. What are those relationships like? And the whole point of apostolic grace, the whole point of restoring apostles is not just to plant more churches. It's not just to have more healing or more miracles. These things will come, of course they'll come. And it's not just to have more power, but apostles will facilitate it, of course. The purpose of raising apostles, the purpose for which apostles will seek to work with the church, the end to which apostles seek to lead the church, has everything to do with what church life is like. Called by the New Testament, maturity. Until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, Paul said, measuring up to the fullness of the stature of Christ. That is apostolic purpose. For this reason, Christ is in heaven. It is for this reason that Christ at the right hand of the Father is appointing apostles as gifts, prophets as gifts, teachers as gifts, pastors as gifts, to bring the church to this maturity. 
And if that is not understood by people who call themselves apostles and prophets, either they haven't learned much yet about their role or they're not. We have to lay down some pretty clear, some pretty stringent rails for that train to run on, which is why I'm writing that book, The Testing of Apostles. Somebody's got to decide where the, where the high jump bar sits. And that's what that book's about. And hopefully it will change the conversation in the world because as one American fellow wrote to me recently and said, apostles, he said, we're swimming in them. And you know what? Um, there's a famous movie in which there's a line, you know. When everyone is super, no one will be. You know, yes, when everyone's an apostle, you don't have any apostles, right? No, no. Listen, there will be apostles. These are early days. I, I'm kind of like a forerunner, you know, understanding it, describing it, and we have a journey to make. I wrote this first book. Um, I'd been teaching all this through Southeast Asia and, and a bit in America, and in um, England and Ireland and parts of Africa. But uh, our emphasis wasn't Australia in the 90s. We were just being sent overseas. And I had so far paid 28 visits to the Philippines and umpteen dozen, you know, to India and Cambodia and Indonesia and, you know, all kinds of lovely places in Southeast Asia. Um, but a day came when the Lord said, take this message to Australia. And I knew I, we couldn't do that or I couldn't do that without a book. And I had known for 13 years I had to write a defining book. And this is the book, the Apostolic Revelation, the first book written in 2002, the same year in which the Holy Spirit moved uh, quite sovereignly three times on our church in the course of the year and changed our hearts. So I wrote this book and knowing that this was meant to be a definitive book, the textbook on, the on two things. One is the nature of apostles. What, there's, there's, chap there's chapters in here on you know, what authority apostle has, what the nature of apostle is, all that. Um, but I also knew that it was a book that was describing the, um, the rudiments of the Reformation of the Church, the Apostolic Reformation. In other words, what its elements would be, what the, the main changes would be. And there's not an idea in that book that I would change today. You know, very often you, people write books, but 10 or 20 years later they, they'd revise it and they'd take some things out and put some other things. That will not happen with this book. Although soon I will revise the book, but only to sharpen the writing and uh, then republish it and turn it into an audio book. But it was just recently I went looking for something I thought I'd written somewhere and, uh, and found it. But looking through the book, I thought, you know, this, this really is remarkable information. And I, I actually think this book will come back into its own. I think it's going to get um, its, its main round of purpose yet to come. I did notice that of the 12 chapters, seven of them, if you pulled those seven chapters out and published them separately, it would actually be a very good book just defining apostles. And I may yet do that. But I wanted to draw your attention to the book again. Um, they're cheap, they're over here, and if anybody hasn't got one, 
But uh, if, you, if you haven't read it or haven't read it in a long time, it would not hurt to look at some of these key chapters again. Of great interest was that, um, was it this morning, I think, Felix was telling me something. I had, or maybe he told me yesterday, that I have not, had not known in um, 26 years. 26 years ago, something quite astounding happened, and Felix threw in another element of it today. I was in the Philippines, and it was right after we'd had our week that led to two weeks of prayer, a week of whole silence before God, and then he began to talk, and then Christ appeared to me and spoke, and then all this judgment was looming over us, and, and then you talk about me. He, took, he, he didn't take me to the, the door of hell. He, he dangled me over it. For a long time, and you talk about frightening, because at any moment I was about to drop and nothing would save me. And he dealt with me for another two and a half hours, and just um, a whole Tuesday afternoon. And uh, so with all of this that had gone on and with this fresh command from the Lord to take an apostolic message to the nations, within two weeks of that I was in the Philippines. And uh, I had to speak to the Quezon City pastoral movement on a Tuesday morning, but Monday night in my room in the Sulu Hotel, which Felix tells me is now closed. Uh, I, I knelt for prayer. I had a message to preach about the apostolic, but I just felt for some reason I needed to bring a prophecy. And I had no confidence as a as a prophet as such, but I sought the Lord and asked, would he give me a prophecy? And I, as soon as I asked, instantly had visions of this great storm that came, struck the city, saw broken buildings, broken bridge. And, and then the Lord spoke and he said, an ill wind will strike the city and it will shatter the traditional structures of the church. I thought, well, this is a terrible word, you know, frightening and who knows what all that means, you know. But because I'd asked the Lord for one and because it had the visions to go with it, I thought, well, I've got no choice, you know, whether it's right or not, accurate or not, dumb or not, I just, you know, I better obey. And um, so I stood up in the meeting. Now, I, we get to the meeting, we go, it's Faith Baptist. And we go downstairs and having breakfast and you can only eat so many rice cakes and drink so much coffee and you're done. All these Filipino pastors are there and I, I'm always keen, I used to be keen anyway, to get a look at the meeting area just to kind of get comfortable with the circumstances, you know. And uh, so I wandered upstairs on my own to this huge big church. It must have seated, you know, like huge numbers. And uh, five aisles. I mean, we, we kind of got, you know, one, but five. And... Um, Tropics, so uh, you know, all down the side were these um, fanfold doors that opened on both sides. But I walk in, got the shock of my life, because here at the front of the aisle, down there was a, was the lectern, but right behind the lectern, with just enough room like this for me to be here, but right there was a a big coffin with the lid open and a dead body on display. But that wasn't all. Standing in an ark around, well, down there, standing in an ark on that floor were eight of the biggest candlesticks you have ever seen. 
brass, solid brass. They were about this fat. They stood five foot tall. And, and all the glittering arrangements were on top. And the, the middle six, three and three, were, you know, multi-branch jobs and plugged into the 240 power and flickering lights. But the ones on either end were just a, a great big red candle with a big glass sheath stuck off. So imagine these great big brass things, solid, gleaming, polished, you know, big legs like this, all across. But then behind that, stretching over here and all up and over the platform and all down the other side were 30 to 40 flower arrangements, and each one of those was bigger than the spray of my hands. And these all stood shoulder to shoulder. So, I mean, it was quite a display, really. But when you walk in and realize you've got to stand in front of all of that, the, you know, the dead body, the open coffin, the flickering lights, and try and get the attention of pastors, and you're thinking, oh, you know. However, you, you settle your mind to it. This is the job. <laughs> at least you didn't have to look at it, you know. And, and, and so I pre I'm preaching about the apostolic and the restoration of apostles. Halfway through the message, I'm, I suddenly think, well, this is the right moment to release this prophecy. But I apologized to them. I said, look, I, I can't guarantee I'm much of a prophet. However, I prayed, and this is the word I got with vision, so I'm just going to tell you what it was, and you can please yourself whether it's any good or not. You can think about what it means. And that's all. That's about as as serious as I got with the word. And so I told them, an ill wind will blow on the city and it will shatter the traditional structures of the church. And I, I went to go back to my message. When all of a sudden, events were taken out of my hands. And a violent wind from this side over here, a violent wind struck the building and shook it. But the power of the wind came in one door. It didn't come in all the doors. It, it came in one door down there and rushed up here and took a hold of four or five or six of these big flower arrangements and picked them up and hurled them against the big candlestick on my far left, the one with the big red candle, and, and knocked it over and it fell down straight behind me on the floor. All that polished brass and glass came down on a marble floor with these whopping great vaulted ceilings, and it was like a bomb. Just boom, you know. And shattered glass, you know, melted red wax, just a mess. But the thing was, this boom was shocking, just boom, you know. And all these Filipinos turned white. No, I mean, this is hard to do when you're Filipino, right? <laughs> and, uh, just shock. And, and I thought they were going to jump up to clean up the mess, and I didn't want to lose the meeting. I'm thinking, no, 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 it's okay, leave it there. You know, we'll clean the mess later. And I go back to my, I'm trying to get started on again. I'm into my first sentence. When in the third row, sitting about where Graham is here, but the seats were straight, was this young Filipino fellow and he says, oh, please, sir, this is a sign. And I realized the moment he said it's a sign, oh, I thought, the Holy Spirit has just enacted out the prophecy. An ill wind struck the building and shattered, you know, threw to the ground and shattered 
the one thing that in the New Testament is the symbol of the New Testament church, the golden candlestick. Realizing that puts, puts the wind up you, to use an Australian expression. No, it does. Not just pause for thought. Oh, you know. How often, the moment you speak a prophetic word, does the Holy Spirit come into the meeting and act it out? It's meant to get your attention. I thought about the meaning of that for a long time. But Felix told me this morning that that fellow sitting there who said, please, sir, this is a sign, was totally unknown to them, had never been seen before. The moment he said it, disappeared out of the meeting and has never been seen again. And I'm thinking, the Lord made sure we knew something that we needed to know because in that culture, nobody would have thought to say it's a sign. But what does that suggest to you? You know, the Bible says angels help out. That's just what it seems like to me. Because Felix had every intention of talking to the fellow. But he was no longer there. It hasn't been seen since and wasn't anyone known. Very unusual for, you know, in a pastor's gathering. Anyway, enough of that. I put you in remembrance of it and I tell that story in the first chapter of this book makes him attempt to interpret its meaning and purpose. I go on to talk about the rudiments of the apostolic reformation that is coming. An interesting thing was, this was all being preached by me all over the world before most of it was even seen anywhere in the world. The whole idea of city eldership, for example, really didn't become a popular idea being talked about until this last 15 years. But I was preaching it, you know, 20 and 30 years ago and actually wrote the book on it well over 20 years ago. Um, and that came by revelation. The whole idea of the, the, the unity of the body of Christ is not a new one, but uh, that, that bringing together of the, the church of the city, oneness between pastors, the, the, the elderships being established over them, the whole idea of apostles, apostolic covering of, of local congregations being a people of one heart, one mind, the real community grace at work, the spirit of understanding at work. And of course, though, the very heart of it, when you, um, there's a whole chapter in here on father-son relationship in the ministry. This is the, the note I wanted to end on tonight. I was flying to India. We, in, the, in 2002, we had these three major moves of the Holy Spirit upon the church, but the middle one occurred in June of 2002, in which the, the spirit of sonship transformed hearts. One of those hearts was Tony sitting right back there, Tony whom I make famous all over the world. Uh, the, um, his heart was totally transformed by the moving of the spirit but so was mine. His heart towards me, mine towards Chuck, it was, a, it was a miracle. I, who had known Chuck eight years, but thought we already had received from Chuck everything he had to offer. We'd heard his preaching, received his prayers and his blessings, and he was just a good friend, and I didn't think there was any more in it. 
But I tell you what, the Spirit of God moved and totally transformed, not him, but me. And I came in, like we'd been teaching father-son relationship and the importance of the spirit of sonship and all that for years. But all of a sudden I moved from having a good Bible message on it to having what can only be called an anointing for it, along with revelation. Most things in the Christian church need revelation for you to get it right. And that I was flooded with the revelation, but revelation like that always comes with power. You become a different person in the way you live and think because you now have a different heart. Now, you're not unfamiliar with this because when you were born again, power changed you so that you had a different heart. But having your heart made even better and renewed and put in a, an altogether new place doesn't happen only once, it turns out, in the Christian life. And you can have multiple experiences of your heart being healed, delivered, released, set free, established in grace, lifted to another level. And the baptism of the Spirit is simply a primary one of those. Now, it's an essential one, but there can be other multiple experiences. And for me, this one, where, where I was, and I was sitting doing nothing. I was sitting in the front row with Hazel next to me, it was Saturday afternoon, you know, normally the sleepiest part of the conference. And Chuck's up here preaching about who knows what on the occasion. You don't do your best or your most compelling message on Saturday afternoons. You save it for Saturday night. And uh, so who knows what he was on about. He, but, but I'm sitting there and all of a sudden felt so totally different. And I can still remember my precise thoughts saying to myself, I belong to him and he belongs to me. And Hazelnut, we belong to Chuck and Karen. Chuck and Karen belong to us. And all of our people belong to Chuck and Karen. It was just this overwhelming heart. Oh, you can't even describe it. The oneness that I was transported into, one with him. And from that time on, for the next 10 years that we walked together until he died, one in spirit. And even though I saw him but once a year, the odd phone call through the year, the, set, the depth of that, the sense of oneness, the sense of belonging, the sense of grace, the sense of power coming to me, and yet the power wasn't coming to Chuck, the, the power was coming from Christ, there was, there was Holy Spirit grace powerfully resting on me that enabled me to do all kinds of things in the world and to come into ever-increasing revelation. And it was because by the Holy Spirit, he'd made us one. So it wasn't anything that I put in by the flesh, nothing that he put in in terms of his energy. It just worked. It's the spirit of sonship. And please, if you can understand this is what it was like with Jesus in his walk with the Father. The, the oneness. No wonder he prayed, Father, make them one, as you and I are one. I walked in that for 10 years with Chuck and never even knew it was the fulfillment of that scripture until he'd, the day he'd died and I was on a dash eight flying from Rockhampton down to Brisbane 
just had a feeling that asked me to speak at the funeral. I started to make some notes and it was in that moment I suddenly realized that what Jesus had prayed before he went to the garden had been fulfilled in, in us. And I often think, you know, I don't, I don't know whether I can find that with someone else again, although we certainly walk in something close to it. But I knew that I, I must allow sons, I must allow the Holy Spirit to create these kinds of relationships as much as possible. The oneness of spirit, that, that strength and power that, that comes to us each, but especially to sons to strengthen them, to, to make them secure, to protect them, to bless the favour of God. I, I, I walked in tremendous favour in all those years and I've not lost it since. But it was prior to that, the Lord was giving me dreams about how naked I was. Yes, I remember one dream in particular. Walked down, uh, it was Elizabeth Street in Sydney, the church that I used to we- went to when I was a teenager was there, so I was in Congress Hall turned in the front door, carrying a briefcase. I, I was now the pastor of this place. I was the officer. <laughs> walk in, walk up the center aisle, get to the front, turn around. And, in fact, they got a gallery there with this, this beautiful sign on it, little sign that says, Sir, we would see Jesus. Every preacher, you know, has got that in his face. <laughs> and uh, so I come down the aisle and turn around and suddenly realize I am Starkers. Not a stitch on. You know, I mean... <laughs> the only redeeming feature of dreams, aside from getting their meaning right, is that you wake up and think, oh, thank God, you know, <laughs> only, only a dream. Because when you're in the dream, it feels so real. <laughs> you feel it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, in the dream, in the dream, I open my briefcase and there's some clothing in there and I get it out and put it on because it's all I've got. And the clothing is good quality, but it's too small for me. But I get it on, and shirts like this, you know, and the dacks, you got to do them up, you know. <laughs> and what was the Lord saying? He was saying, I was getting my covering out of my own ministry. You're drawing it out of my own resources. You know, I was surrounded by good people pastors, elders, deacons, wife, children, you know, church. But something else was needed. And even though it was good quality, it, it didn't fit. That you know, I, I it wasn't big enough. I had another dream. Chuck had unusual hair, and another dream, I've, I've got his hair. You know, symbols of being un, under that covering, under that leadership. I had all these dreams. I told Chuck about that, and he said, "Man, that must have looked good." <laughs> yeah. Well, later in life, life, he just shaved it all off just to a buzz, you know. <laughs> well, I've been doing that too. But um, anyway, this, this was the lead up. Oh, and then, then there was something very telling. He uh, showed me one day the difference between, in, in a vision, the difference between what he called the covering of Christ and the covering of men. The covering of Christ is pure gold, because this is how I was seeing it. Pure gold. But the covering of men was a mixture. A little bit of gold, a little bit of silver, a few precious stones. 
but a lot of wood and hay and stubble all mixed in. And this was representing to me where denominational covering is at. It's covering of a sorts, it's Christian, but it's a mixture. It's got some good things in there, but it's a mixture. And it's not the real gold of Christ's covering. And he said to me, Christ will be your covering. But what he meant by that was, I will appoint an apostle for you. And he did. But it was eight years of walking with Chuck, visiting him, him visiting me, before we had that breakthrough. And my heart so changed. And I discovered that this is not just talk, it's power. There's a lot of people talk the talk. A lot of people talk sonship, fathering, all of that. For some, it's just a religious system by which you can kind of keep the sheep in the pen. But no, the real thing is a grace. It's a grace you walk in. It's power. It's the favor of God. It is heart transforming. It's eye opening. It is life giving. I mentioned sonship especially tonight. Because you, you need to not let that go stale in your heart. You, know, you, you keep that fresh. You keep that alive. Keep your understanding. If you haven't got enough, you've got to pray into this because there's grace in this. And it's very much the core of the thing. You know, I, I have um, discovered a kind of a, I mean, and now described it, described here a kind of a, a structure of what to expect but it's the relational aspect, in particular the father-son relationship in the ministry, which is the real heart, the real guts, the real inner soul of the apostolic transformation of the church. So I say these things just to raise your appreciation of Christ's apostolic purpose. It's early days. It's a bit like the early days of Pentecost where, you know, some churches got into it early, but most of the body of Christ weren't interested or rejected it. But then over later on, oh, it broke through into other churches. But here we are 100 years later, there are still parts of Christianity who are coming with great joy into Pentecost, you know, into, into the charismatic movement, just as there are still churches in the world today coming into the evangelical movement. You've got Catholics today, you've got Calvinists today who call themselves evangelicals. No, so these things go out bit by bit, helping more and more people. You'll find the apostolic will do the same. And you'll find that over 100 years or 200 years or 300 years, it will have transformed Christianity in the world. The church will have become an apostolic people. So there you have it. If you don't feel you have a revelation to the heart, I gave you the clues all conference long about praying for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. But now you can add to this the fact that, oh, there are certain things that I must get a revelation of. There's power in a lot of things. So therefore, if you're in the ministry to get a real revelation, for example, of the power that's in baptism, to get a real revelation to the heart of the power that is in tithing, to get a real revelation to the heart of the power that's in the the Holy Communion table. But likewise, to get a real revelation to the heart of the power of sonship, the grace, that's a critical one. 
really critical. So I'm going to pray for you and uh, let the band come and um, we'll spend a few moments. I think, I think there's a great anointing of grace resting there right now upon this gathering. It's, it's upon you now. And I think your prayer could be a simple one of just asking the Lord if he would flood your heart with the spirit of sonship, that with a, a revelation of the apostolic grace to really renew you and refresh you. I just think there's a great grace here tonight for people to see. Now, it's not with the outward eye you see, so neither is it with the rational mind. Mind you, it's not irrational, but there comes to you a flood of understanding which then your mind understands. The mind will understand it, but it doesn't start with the mind. It starts with the Holy Spirit flooding you with his mind. Remember the Bible says spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And that's what has to happen if you'd get a handle, not, not just on sonship in a form that you can stand up and preach it as a Bible message, but rather as a power and a grace that, that you live out that the, the power of the thing is in you. Interesting thing about this, it doesn't depend on the quality of your father. depends on what goes on in your heart, you know, toward a father or toward an apostle. So bow your head with me. Let's just recognize that the Holy Spirit is already upon you. He's, he's upon this meeting. He's upon you. He's upon me. And I want you to receive the grace. Lord, I thank you that the spirit of sonship is, in fact, the reality of the life of Christ poured into us. The ultimate son of the Father in eternity. Lord, all that's in your heart, the way you think, the way you see things, the way you feel, pour them into us that we also might become truly one, truly like the Son of God forever. Come, Holy Spirit, Spirit of the Father and of the Son, and bring us into the fullness of Christ. And I pray for those gathered tonight, men and women, brothers and sisters, dear ones, young and old. And Lord, I'm asking that this heavenly glory that has come down would not only rest upon each of these believers, but by your power be imbued in them, Lord, and endow each one with the life of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that the spirit of sonship would somehow be flooded into the hearts and minds of each one here. Even those who don't understand it yet, even those who may still be cautious, I ask, Lord, you'd reveal yourself to them because it is Christ 
that we seek to have revealed. And so in these hours and in these days, may there be a revelation of the Christ to every heart. And so I place upon you each tonight the spirit of understanding, the grace that is in the Lord Jesus. We receive it from him tonight, from the very throne of grace. Heaven come down, the dew of heaven resting upon you. The dew of heaven rest on you. And I place upon you the spirit of understanding and the spirit of Christ. I place upon you the the anointing and the, the spirit of revelation for sonship. In Jesus' name, I release it to you. Lord, the transforming of hearts that each one would be enabled by your power and by your mind formed within to see others as you see them, to walk in the Spirit, to bear fruit unto God our Father, living the life of the the priesthood in the kingdom and, and of sons and of fathers. Thank you that you hear our prayers. Holy Spirit, in your fullness, equip the church, equip the pastors. Every church represented here tonight, I ask the Lord your blessing, your favour, so that even the, those who are not here, but they are part and parcel of the lives and the loves of people who are here, I ask that upon all of those, just as, just as when the Spirit of God came on the 70 in the camp, it also came on the two who are not, I ask that the endowment of the Spirit tonight would flow into every church that is represented here as a blessing from the Lord, as life from Jesus Christ for the maturing of the saints and the lifting up of the body. And Lord, I pray for this city, for Rockhampton, and ask that you would make the body one, that we might be possessed all the more of the Holy Ghost that Jesus would be all the more formed in the church of this city and that indeed the whole city would become the church. Come Lord Jesus and make us truly one. I pray you breathe upon all the ministers of the word of God in this city to turn their hearts to one another as is the will of God. So make us whole. Let the spirit of community, the spirit of sonship and fathering be all over the city all over this congregation and all over the hearts and minds of every visitor we have and all of those online and every church represented by them. I send out the blessing. I send out the peace of the Lord Jesus and the spirit of sonship I release to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You must seek the Lord to make this your own. There are greater things in this than can be simply communicated in a single meeting. Like all things, revelation to the heart makes a huge transformation. So it's in your prayers at home that you get on your knees before the Lord, say, Lord, would you flood me with understanding? I was on a plane to India after that 2002 summit here when Chuck spoke and our hearts were transformed for the second time that year. I was on a plane to India and 
I knew the first thing I had to do in India was address 400 Pentecostal pastors for a day. And I, I wrote on my notepad um, the subjects I would lecture on. I wrote down five, and the fifth one I wrote was father-son relationship in the ministry. And as soon as I'd written it, the Lord said, that is the wineskin of the church. That's the, the father-son relationship is the, the structure that is meant to make the body so healthy. What holds us together, it's meant to be the dynamic of heart relationships, one to another, and especially to our leaders. When the scripture says, if anyone says he loves God but does not love his brother, the truth is not in him, it turns out that of all the brothers, there is one brother who is the litmus test of whether you love the brethren. Jesus, oh, I love the church. Oh, I love worship. People do this. But it's like saying, oh, I love God. No. Do you love the brethren? Well, it turns out there's one brother amongst the brethren who is the test. And that happens to be the brother, or it might be a sister, that the Lord has appointed to lead you. The one who's been appointed to be the pastor or to be the leader. The one that you are there as a part of the body to help and support and serve and be loyal to and love and to honour and to submit to, you know, to strengthen. Do you love that brother? That's the test of whether the spirit of sonship is in you. So there you are. I'm going to let the, the band minister to us. If they happen to strike upon a song, you know, you can sing it. <laughs> we'll take a couple of minutes here just to enjoy the Lord before we quit for the night.